hope that you, like me, were able to get out and enjoy the sunshine a little bit uh, this week. Just talking with uh, Gary, who's saying he had to work and sweat in the sunshine, but uh, hopefully you were able to get out there and enjoy this uh, this weather that we've had uh, this last week. Anybody get outside in the sunshine and enjoy yourself this week? I saw my first snake of the year, uh, which isn't exactly a highlight. It was just a king snake, but I saw my first snake. But a highlight was seeing the flowers. Lots of flowers are out there, and uh, my wife and Gracie got to go for a little hike. Was that yesterday? Day before. Day before. And just to, just to view the flowers. So uh, this is a good time to get out there and do that. Jesus tells us uh, that in this world, uh, we are going to have trouble. We are going to have tribulation. We know this not only from his word, but we know this from experience. We know this from life experience. Just yesterday, I was asking uh, one of my children, I will uh, keep their identity anonymous, but I was asking one of my children to clean their room. And you would have thought that I had asked to climb Mount Everest in shorts and flip-flops. Trouble and tribulation came into this child's mind in a massive way. If you are older than two or three years of age, you have experienced trouble and tribulation in this life. God's message to us today through his word is that even though we experience trouble, our hearts do not have to be troubled. Even though trouble and hard stuff, tough stuff is going to come into our lives, our hearts do not have to be troubled. And in today's passage, as we continue our journey through the book of John, the disciples experience trouble in three ways. The first thing that we're going to see is uh, one of them, one of the twelve, these close brothers, the apostles who have spent night and day and meals with the Lord Jesus, one of them is a betrayer. And this is trouble that has come into their midst, and there is turmoil in their souls. The biggest type of trouble that is coming into their lives in this passage today is the news that Jesus gives them that he is leaving them and they cannot go where he is going, at least not yet. So we've got a betrayer, we've got Jesus leaving us from the 12's perspective, and then finally we have one of the 12, Peter, uh, being told that he's going to deny Christ. We have betrayal, we have Jesus leaving, and we have one of the twelve, the leader of the twelve, denying Christ three times. We have that prophesied or or spoken by Christ. There is trouble. But his message to them is that their hearts do not have to be troubled. And that's my message for us today as well. We're going to see that Jesus shows us in his word today that there is a way through trouble without troubled hearts. Let's pray once again before we uh, get into his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in our lives. Lord, by the power of the Spirit, I ask that we would actually even be able to pray, we thank you for trouble. 
We thank you for trials that refine us and that shape us. When we know that you are bigger than they are and that we do not need to fear them, they, they can be good things. They are intended to be good things in our lives. I pray for everyone here this morning that as we go through this passage that you would be speaking through the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that I could never plan, no preacher can, to speak to each of us in the various settings that we are in, the various life circumstances, the various framework that, that we come into this place this morning. So I ask that you would speak powerfully through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're already uh, open, I think, to John 13. Uh, Joe uh, did read the right passage. We're going to pick up right where uh, he left off. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, the passage that Joe just read is, is, was our passage for last week. And we saw there in verse 1 of chapter 13, it is just before the Passover meal. And Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room. And he has done this astounding thing, not when they came into the room. An, a servant didn't wash their feet when they came into the room, but he interrupts the meal in some way, and he washes his disciples' feet. And then he says, I want you to follow my example. That was last week. We pick it up right there uh, today in verse 18. So you want to have a Bible open in front of you. I'm going to be in the text heavy here, these, the first part of this message. We're going to go through this verse by verse, beginning in verse 18. He says this, the same setting in that upper room. He's just told them to, to follow his example. And he says this in 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now this is a quotation of Psalm 41.9. So we see that Judas's betrayal was prophesied even in the Old Testament. This isn't a surprise to Jesus. This isn't a surprise to God. He is quoting scripture about what is about to happen. Verse 19, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. This is the theme of the gospel right there, the theme of the gospel of John, that you will believe that I am he. Even this event is here so that you and I will believe, that we will believe more faithfully, that this prophecy too is going to be fulfilled. Verse 20, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Now it's interesting in a, a message this morning about trouble that Jesus himself is troubled here in verse 21. But we know from our reading of Scripture that even when Jesus is troubled, uh, he does not sin. Jesus does not sin in his trouble. The, the trouble with us, with our trouble, is that we sin in our trouble. That we are anxious. That our problems uh, become all-encompassing. That God becomes small. That they become huge. And so trouble for us is very different than Jesus' spirit being troubled here. And I think the reason that his spirit with a small s is being troubled in 21 is he is talking about the betrayal. He is on the road to the cross. And he is certainly thinking here of the pain. Not just the emotional pain of betrayal, but the pain, literally, the spiritual and physical pain that he is going to endure on the cross. He's on that road. His public ministry 
is more or less over at this point in John's Gospel. What he is saying now until he is on the cross is pretty much to the twelve, to his disciples. He has called them together. And he's telling them of this first uh, troubling thing in their lives that one of you is going to betray him. Look at verse 22. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. They have no clue who it is that's going to betray him. Now we come to this passage and we know the end of the story. We know who the bad guy is. But they have no idea. And I think we need to impress that upon ourselves here. They're at a loss. Who is it? Who, 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 who is it? In fact, in the Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, they are deeply grieved and they say to one another, surely it's not me. Surely not I. Am I the one? They have no idea that it's Judas. Judas looks godlier to them than each of them look to themselves. Each of them knows the sinfulness in their own hearts. And they are seriously looking at themselves and saying, am I the one who's going to betray the Lord? This is troubling. This is, this is a tribulation. Look at verse 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclined next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Now we've got to pause here for, for a moment on verse 23. Because this is the first occurrence in John's gospel of this phrase describing one of the apostles, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you need to know who this is. Some of you may know who this is. This is John himself here. John, the apostle, the author of this gospel, is never mentioned by name throughout this entire book that he wrote. And he refers to himself, we think, out of a sense of respect. We probably wouldn't have written it this way. It's not, it might sound something, you know, I, I don't picture myself describing myself that way if I were in this position. But this is how the Holy Spirit led him to describe himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John himself, is right next to Jesus in this upper room. This phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is used uh, several times um, here in chapter 13. It's used in chapter 19, 20, and twice in 21. So that's five times this phrase is used. And I want you to get a picture for the kind of intimate relationship that Jesus has with John. And the appropriateness of this phrase, him describing himself as the one that uh, the, the disciple uh, whom Jesus loved. Uh, flip over, if you will, just a couple pages to chapter 19. Uh, jumping ahead to the cross. Jesus is on the cross here. Look at verse 25, chapter 19. It says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. 
or behold your son. And to the disciple, speaking to John, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John, the apostle, takes Jesus' place. The assumption is that Joseph has died here. She is a widow. She needs a man to care for her and to protect her. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. The only one mentioned who is at the foot of the cross is taking Jesus' role as Mary's son. This is an intimate relationship. So back to our text in chapter 13. Verse 23, the disciple whom Jesus loved is reclining next to him. Verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Even uh, even Peter recognizes this intimate relationship and, and, and has him speak to Jesus. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And I have to give you a visual here. Many of you perhaps have this visual Uh, In your mind, as I'm saying it, do you know what visual I'm going to put up on the screen here? They're gathered in the upper room, and we have this famous uh, piece of art uh, here by Leonardo da Vinci. And this uh, piece of art is following this passage uh, right here. If we uh, zoom in on Jesus' right, we have John. Not exactly the way I would have painted John, but uh, I'm not Leonardo da Vinci, right? It's a good thing. If I painted John, he would have just been a stick figure and uh, a little J with an arrow pointing (laughs) to him. But here's John, and Peter is motioning to John. Uh, We don't know where Peter actually was at the table. We see what Leonardo's interpretation was. My own view is Peter was probably somewhat more distant, and that's why he would motion to him. He's right next to him. He could have just spoken. So I I don't think that, I think my guess is Peter was probably somewhere else. And right in front of Peter and John, we have Judas. In verse 29, it mentions that Judas is in charge of the treasury. And you see that uh, he is holding a bag, which we assume is of money here. Uh, Judas has the money bag. He's also knocking over a container of salt on the table. If you look closely as we've zoomed in, there's some symbolism there uh, from uh, an expression in Da Vinci's era. But the reality is that that they would not have been sitting at a table like that. They would have been sitting at a table that looks something more like this. This is a French uh, painting uh, by a guy named uh, Nicolai Poussy in the 1600s. And as we read this passage, we should envision something like this. You can see the apostles, the 12 of them, are reclined. And they would have been reclined on their left elbow, In those days, they would have been laid out uh, on a cushion, and they would eat like this with their with their right hand. And this uh, this uh, artist has put John. I mean, he's really leaning up against Jesus. Do you see him there? He almost looks like a piece of bread on the table. His head is like way uh, there on the table. Okay, enough of art history. I wanted to give you a picture of what's going on. Is that is that helpful? What we have a picture in our minds of 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 what is going on back to the passage um, in the word of God. He has motioned to him, ask him which one he means. Verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, 
It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, a son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now we have a, a, another amazing thing happening here um, with, regarding Judas. As we saw last week, one of the most amazing things to me that impresses me in this passage is that G- Jesus washed Judas's feet. The text goes out of the way to make it clear that he washed all of their feet. We looked at that last week, and now this week, he feeds him a piece of bread. I, I don't think this is communion or the Lord, Lord's Supper going on here. The, the kind of bread that they would have had would have been a, a stiff piece of bread uh, used as a delivery device. And I can't help but think of a, of a tortilla and salsa. Uh, you know, he's, he's dipping this stiff piece of bread into something good, and he is giving it to uh, Judas just as we might go for some salsa on a chip. But unlike uh, in our day, in our culture, this was a sign of esteem, what Jesus was doing. This was a signal in that culture when a man would, would dip bread into the food, this good food, and actually feed someone else was a sign of esteem for that person and love for that person. And so we have a picture, again, of gospel love here. Remember, he's just said, I want you to follow my example. The example is that you love one another in lowly ways, including those who hate you, who despise you, who betray you. If you are going to follow me, Christian, if you are going to follow me, Mike, Jesus is saying, you are going to act like this. And you are going to show esteem and love and tenderness to even those who betray you. This is what gospel love looks like. Christ died for us when we are still sinners. And we are called to love unconditionally, even those who betray us, in such a way that we point them to the cross, that we point them to Jesus, that we point them to redemption. This is, I believe, what he is modeling for us here. Verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Satan has obviously been influencing him for some time, but now it is full bore. He has entered in. This is the only time the word Satan is used in this gospel, verse 27. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Presumably other than John. I mean, they're they're still clueless as to what is going on. He's just esteemed this guy. He's just shown love to him. Verse 29. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast. Passover feast, it's about to happen. He's sending him out to go get stuff or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. The symbolism of darkness, of evil, is here. It was night. So this is the first difficult thing, the first uh, trouble, the first uh, tribulation that is coming in to their lives. Next one pops up in verse 31. When he was gone, Judas is gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, 
God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So this is a remarkable way to speak of your death. Glorified. But that is what he's saying right here. He's going to be more clear and more specific in a moment. But he says, now is the time, guys. He follows it up. Look at verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. This is tough. This is a dagger. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 34. Or before I go to verse 34, uh, one commentator writes this. He says, Peter and Thomas and the others are thoroughly shocked and with good reason. They have followed Jesus, burning their boats and blowing up the bridges behind them, so to speak. And now he has disclosed to them that he is about to go where they cannot follow him as yet. That means they must part from him. The reason why they're so deeply shocked is that separation from their Lord is absolutely unthinkable. They have just spent all of this time with him. They're having this meal. He's just shown his love to them. He has demonstrated it. He hasn't described it, but he has shown it to them by washing their feet. They're in this intimate setting. He's addressing them as children, and he says, you cannot come where I'm going. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He calls this a new command. So a careful reader should ask the question, well, how is this a new command? This goes all the way back to the old covenant and Moses that we should love one another. And the way that this is a new command is the way that he has just demonstrated. This is a new command where my followers are commanded to lowly serve one another in such a way that you point the world to the cross by how you love each other by the way you wash one another's feet, by the way that you are willing to dip bread into food and feed in loving tenderness your enemy, your betrayer. This is the new expression of this old commandment of love one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? I, I have to laugh a little bit here. I just, I mean, Peter is clueless often. We are clueless often. Do you, are, are you glad for, for the humanity of Peter and the cluelessness? We talked about this in our Shepherd Group Friday, about how impulsive this guy is. Yo, you can't wash my feet. Oh, wash all of me. Uh, well, where are you going? And in a moment, well, let's just go there now. Um, let's continue on. Verse 36, Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. The reality is he's going to deny him three times. But he's saying, I'm going to lay my life down for you. Peter is impulsive. He is messed up. He is confused, just like we are. And the good news of the gospel, the good news about our God, is that he chooses to use people like Peter to do great things. He chooses to use people like you and people like me to do great things for his kingdom. So 
So Peter says in verse 37, he's of the mind and spirit. Where are you going? I'm willing to lay my life down for you. The reality is a little different. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So this is, um, this is worse than having to clean your room. Uh, this, is, this is trouble. This is tribulation. Peter's denying me. Peter's thinking to himself, I'm going to be denying him. I'm ready to lay my life down, is how he's thinking right now. You can't follow me. One of you is a betrayer. They still seem clueless, I guess, apart from John, as to who that betrayer is. He's told them numerous times, going all the way back to chapter 6, there's going to be someone, and now he's told John, but they still seem clueless. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time is talk about how we can make it through the kinds of troubles that we experience. Ours are different than theirs. Some similarities. We're bozos like Peter, but we have different kinds of troubles in our lives. How do we make it through troubles without having troubled hearts? And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. And as Pastor Adam has mentioned before, the chapter divisions in our Bibles are helpful to us, but sometimes they're in, in bad places. And this is one of those situations. It would be good for 14.1 just to be planted right up against 38. It's, it f- it's following right out of here. I don't know exactly where we should put the break, but I wouldn't put a break right here. So I'm going to have four points about how we respond, what Jesus would say to us about how to make it through the difficult situations in life. And they come out of the first couple verses of 14. Look at verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So the first thing I, I-, I want to point out is that Jesus knows the pain of the disciples. He knows what is going on. He knows how troubled they are. And the message, a careful reader of the gospel is going to say, he knows my troubles too. And it's not just John that tells us this, but this is, is pervasive throughout the New Testament, that Jesus knows his sheep, that he knows what you are dealing with. Put your name in there. He knows exactly what you are dealing with today, this morning, last night, this week, the last decade. Whatever trouble or tribulation has been in your life, he knows. Book of Hebrews says this. Chapter 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This next sentence is why I've put this up here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. To put it positively, our high priest, who is Jesus, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with exactly what you are going through. We have one who has been tempted in every way. That's our high priest, Jesus. He has been tempted. Do you see that? In every way. But unlike us, he hasn't fallen short. Now, we love to gather with people who have fallen and sinned and gone through struggles like we have. That's a natural thing. It's a good thing. I'm not against that. 
But I'm trying to contrast that. It's good to gather with people who have sh- that we share struggles with. But Jesus is in a whole different category because he's better than gathering with people who have struggled like we have and failed because he has been tempted in every way. The full onslaught of Satan has come his way and he resisted and conquered. And he knows our weaknesses and his power is available for us to overcome. So the first thing that we need to know in dealing with our troubles so that we don't have troubled hearts, how do we go through the troubles of life without having troubled hearts? Is to know that he knows and has experienced as a human being, as the God-man Jesus Christ, what we have. And he can sympathize. And he's saying that in a different way in chapter 14 and verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then secondly, he says, trust in God. Trust also in me. The theme of, of this gospel of John, to believe in him, both for salvation, for justification, your initial belief, and then believe, 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 believe. We all need to be believing. We all need to be trusting in him. Now, when we communicate this, we have to be very careful if we're shepherding or caring for someone else that's struggling. Because this, this can be the worst thing to say, can't it, to someone who is in the pit, someone who's discouraged, someone who's experienced betrayal, someone who's experienced the grief. Uh, they're, 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 the disciples are processing this grief of, of, of Jesus saying, you can't come where I'm going, I'm leaving. Sometimes the worst thing that we could say to them is something like, well, you, you need to trust in God. You need to trust in him. And we kind of go about. I mean, that, that, that can just... Be, I mean, it's on one hand completely, totally true, but can be the worst thing to say. Are you with me? I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's okay to, to, to say, to, to move or, or something. I know you're awake that way. Are you awake this morning? Good. That can be the worst thing to say, but this is core, that we need to trust him. We need to trust him. Now, what is our tendency? Our tendency Instead of longing for God when we are going through troubles or tribulations, our tendencies are various, but let me just try and hit a couple of them. One of our tendencies is, well, it's not as bad as, as so-and-so, what you're going through. Wait, do you play that? Have you, have you played that card? I mean, I've, I've played that card. Um, so in, I mean, it's not that bad. So-and-so has it worse. Now, one of the problems with that is that it's true. I mean, someone does have it worse. But the biggest problem with that is, is that it's not really helpful. It's not redemptive. It's not gospel. Our trials and our sufferings and our troubles, God's will for them is for them to change us and to strengthen us and to grow us and to redeem us and to make us into stronger believers through them. And to simply say, well, you know, someone's got it worse than you. You know, you, you can make it. I mean, I, I, I've said something like that before. But that's not gospel. That's not where Jesus goes. Another path that we go is, is kind of the power of positive thinking kind of thing. Now, we don't use that phrase. I'm using that in a way that we wouldn't use it. But we would encourage people who are constantly pessimistic or, or negative to, to think positively. And there's an element of truth to that. We shouldn't be constantly pessimistic and negative. But again, that's not redemptive. 
It's not going to help us through this in a biblical gospel sort of way where we become like Christ, where we become stronger believers. Probably the uh, toughest uh, road that we had as a couple, my wife and I, was uh, back in the uh, mid-2000s. Going back to 2000, we had uh, the birth of our first child, July 4th, 2000. Every uh, father probably can remember that moment, the birth of your first child. It's just this incredible thing. For us, it was on July 4th, 2000. Fireworks. It was an exciting day. We fast forward a a couple years to uh, 2003, January 1st, 2003. Our second son comes along. We're just, just rejoicing, carrying these little ones around in the car seats and rejoicing. And then 2004, Michelle's pregnant. We go in for the, for the uh, ultrasound, get those grainy pictures that you, you know, keep with you and email around. And, and we get some really bad news. We get the news that our baby uh, has a chromosomal disorder and that he's going to die. He may die in the womb. He may die after birth. He will not live long if he lives. And we are just, we are in the midst of trouble and tribulation. And we hadn't been somewhere like this. We didn't anticipate this coming. And we are just, we are just down. Our church family's coming around us and loving us. Our family's coming around us and loving us. But we're experiencing this strange dynamic. You know, the previous two times as, as, uh, as that belly went out, you know, our smiles were getting bigger and bigger and, our expectation was getting more and more just eager. And this time, as, as her stomach is, is getting bigger, and this, this baby, this son, Nathan is his name, is, is getting bigger, uh, uh, barring some sort of miracle, you know, we're, we're, moving toward, we're moving toward a memorial service. We're moving toward grief. And uh, people were key in our lives. I'm sharing that people were key. Church family were key. Family was key. I have a, a picture here, if I can get through showing it. This is our son, Nathan, and Michelle's mom holding him in the hospital. He died uh, just before he was born in about nine months, and uh, it was a tough time. But I want to say that at night when we were alone and the tears are flowing and we were hurting, We cried out to God, we trusted in him, and he saw us through. I don't have some great story about, well, here's why it happened. It marked us, it was painful, it marks us. It's it's the, the why question, we don't really get that with Job, we don't really get that in life a lot. But what we get is that God is good. And that he is sufficient to see us through these times. Whatever your trouble is, whatever your tribulation is right now, and I know some of you have some big ones going on, and there's probably bigger ones going on that I don't know about. Just know a few of you. What Jesus is saying to us in verse 1 is to trust him. 
Trust also in me. Trust in the Father and trust also in me. Trust in the Son, in the human, the God-man, Jesus. Two more, two more points. The second one is the next sentence, the next verse. He says this. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. He's pointing them not to power of positive thinking, not to other people have it worse than you. He's pointing them to heaven. And he's saying, where I'm going, I am going to be preparing a place for you. And this is actually our home. If we're thinking rightly, we're aliens and strangers here in this world. And and there's this little dot over here that is kind of, you know, we did this church history class today. There's this little dot that includes all of church history and all of world history and all the history of the universe, past, present, and future, this little dot. And then the whole rest of the platform going on forever and ever and ever that way in, in that direction is heaven, is the presence of God, is what he's referring to. And he points them to that. Again, this can be the worst thing to say if we say it the wrong way. To point people to heaven who are suffering. But this is what Jesus does. He does it in the right way. We need to do it in the right way too. Now the way to heaven for most of us is through death. So we've got to come to terms with death and not be afraid of death. It is the most encouraging and the most beautiful thing. Saw this with Wayne, one of our elders, his mother. It is the most beautiful thing as a pastor to see a seasoned saint who is near death, who is ready to go home to heaven and is smiling and joyful. Saw that with Wayne's mother. We have to come to terms with it. We need to long heaven, long for heaven, and we need to come to terms with death. Going back to my friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes this about death, a man who was looking at it throughout his life. Execution he was looking at. He writes this, death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word that I've just read. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace, the greatest gift of grace that God gives to his people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power if only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous that we can transform death. Or the gospel is what transforms death. Our perspective of death can be transformed when we are trusting in God and we know that he has left us not just for a short time. In our minds, it's been over 2,000 years that he's been gone. He hasn't come back. But he is preparing a place for us. And we need not fear death. We're going to make it through and not have troubled hearts if we are longing for heaven. And then finally, we long for his return. This is the next verse, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. 
So this separation is temporary. And I am coming back for you. This is one of the only allusions in John's gospel to the return of Christ. And it is a good note for us to, to end on. That we should be eager to live as Christ, to die as gain. We should be eager for both life and for heaven. And should God choose to come back in our time for us, we should be ready and rejoicing and welcoming. And trusting him, knowing him, is what gets us through these times of trouble. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it speaks to our condition. We can relate very much to disciples that are clueless, to Peter that is impulsive and talkative and, and confused. It's often where we find ourselves if we're honest. And we are thankful, God, that you use people like us that you rescue people like us, that you calm the troubled hearts of people like us. I pray specifically for those here today who have much trouble and tribulation in their hearts right now. I pray, God, that you would not just be using others. I pray that you would be using others, but I pray that you powerfully, supernaturally would be present, sustaining them, and that they would be trusting you.